Hello there, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman, and you're listening to Exploring Different Brains. Hi, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. And we have today a fantastic judge who's done amazing things right here in Broward County, Florida. Judge Ginger Lerner Wren of the Criminal Division of the 17th Judicial Circuit here in Broward County. Welcome to Different Brains. We're exploring different brains. You know, Hacky, I'm so thrilled to be here. I feel like I explore different brains every day of the week and just enjoy the process and serving people. So this is a real honor to be here. Well, the honor is all mine. And as W.C. Fields said in one of his movies, Your Honor, this is indeed an honor. And you are one of the nation's pioneers in the mental health courts, going back to the first national mental health court, I believe it was in 1997. Tell us how that came about. You know, it was. I cannot believe that we're edging on 20 years. And, you know, I came um, to the judiciary from a disability rights background. And um, I worked with former circuit judge Marsha Beach. You may remember Marsha before she came onto the bench was the executive director of the Florida Advocacy Center for Persons with Disabilities. And um, I was hired to uh, oversee a very uh, interesting federal class action settlement agreement right here in, in Pembroke Pines and uh, to oversee the implementation. It was really fascinating. And I learned, um, you know, um, all of these different areas of psychiatric rehabilitation and consumer rights and disability law and mental health law and systems of care, nothing, nothing that anyone would have ever learned in law school, um, obviously. And so um, when that position um, wound down, I really always wanted to run for office. And at the time, as luck would have it, a lot of luck, um, when I was running for judge in Broward County, Broward County was going through a number of uh, problems. Uh, the first being that there was an overpopulation of individuals just just flooding into our local jail with, men with serious and persistent mental illnesses. And there was a federal class action filed against the jail system. And there was a incredibly high profile case. And it was a murder case. It originated as a murder case involving a young man named Aaron Wynn. And Aaron Wynn actually um, did not have mental illness. He actually um, was involved in a very serious motorcycle accident. And he suffered traumatic brain injury. And the story is a long story. I'm going to make it very brief. But his parents were unable to access any help for Aaron. He revolved through the criminal justice system. Ultimately, his condition worsened. And the traumatic brain injury now was only one of numerous diagnoses 
Um, he was very diverse in terms of his neuro problems, and it included now um, post-traumatic stress disorder uh, as well as schizophrenia. And the story, uh, very briefly, which is really the legacy of the mental health court in Broward and, and for our nation, is that he uh, was checking out of a local grocery store, had some kind of a, a panic attack or something as he was going through the cashier. He ran out of, of the grocery store. He collided with an elderly woman who fell to the pavement, and she died of her uh, brain injuries, and Aaron uh, found himself charged with murder, and Howard Finkelstein uh, of the Broward County, now our public uh, defender, our Broward County public defender at the time, uh, was an assistant chief, and he uh, was selected to represent Aaron. And uh, Howard uh, tells uh, a very heartfelt story of sitting down in the living room with uh, Aaron's uh, parents and his family basically explaining to Howard what it was like to try to find any kind of help for their son, which they couldn't find any. And uh, couldn't, he, they couldn't care for him. Uh, because of all the behavioral problems, he bounced around, you know, through different ALFs and living facilities. There were no programs. And Howard really began to awaken. He had an incredible uh, awakening of conscience in terms of, you know, the shortfalls of Broward County's community system of care. And he wrote uh, the grand jury, and he requested a grand jury investigation. And sure enough, the grand jury accepted uh, his request. And a year later, they issued a 153-page scathing grand jury report that was basically saying that Broward County had absolutely no existing mental health community system of care. There was no one in charge, and essentially no one was accountable to anybody. The mental health court, um, believe it or not, was an outgrowth of that grand jury report, and it was Howard. Howard was the thought catalyst behind uh, the development of a specialized court. I just happened to get lucky. I, I got into office. They were looking for somebody who understood, who had a specialized knowledge, working with individuals of all kinds of neuro um, disabilities and diversity um, and mental health problems. And they asked me as a new rookie judge, never did anything in the criminal justice sphere. Certainly there was no real roadmap to follow in the mental health court other than the work that I did. Um, in the protection, um, you know, an advocacy system for Florida, and that proved to be the roadmap that Broward used um, for our mental health court, and that legacy really belongs uh, to Aaron Wynn. Um, it was really Aaron and Howard's uh, perseverance and, and dedication to create a refuge, a court 
of refuge, where individuals would not be misunderstood or marginalized um, by judges and, quite frankly, by systems that just didn't get it. Now we fast forward approximately 20 years down the pike. And uh, let's see, when I came here in 1978, the population of Broward County, Florida, Greater Fort Lauderdale, was 400,000, I believe. Now it's about 1.8 million. Correct. And so now, tell us how the mental health courts have performed during that time. Well, you know, I, I really am much more interested in how we performed um, in my court in Broward County. And the reason I say that is because I just feel very strongly that the mental health courts um, really should be one of delivery of social justice and human rights and offering you know, treatment um, over punishment and certainly about holding systems accountable. And there's a lot of mental health courts now. There's hundreds of them uh, across the United States and, and around the globe. Um, some are doing really, you know, stellar work. Some, I think, are a little overreaching in terms of who they're holding accountable and for what. Um, and that is just kind of reflects the culture and the values of the community, perhaps. But in Broward, um, I think that we obviously are a court of excellence. Um, we are part-time. I have a regular criminal division that I'm responsible for in addition to the mental health court, but we have no funds. We never got any grants. We were the model for congressional legislation in 2000, so new courts coming online actually get federal money. We get nothing. We don't want it. Um, and we've diverted over 20,000 people out of our local jail system, you know, into care, into the community, and out of a, quite frankly, an inappropriate system of care for people, you know, that have neurological and mental health uh, types of problems. Let's extrapolate this to the greater prison system, the United States, where this political season, that's of course being said that the United States of America has a bigger percentage of people incarcerated than any place else on earth. I just interviewed a gentleman who is uh, William Packard, who's very involved in the prison system. And in our interview, um, he feels that within the overall prison system that, if I'm recalling the numbers correctly, approximately 30 to 50 percent of the inmates have some kind of intellectual disability or significant mental health problem. What's your experience been in that regard? Absolutely. Um, well, first of all, we know that the failures of the deinstitutionalization movement back in the 60s and 70s uh, really morphed our criminal justice system into serving as our largest de facto psychiatric hospitals. Tell our, excuse me, tell our audience about that transition you just referred to with regarding the institutions. I will, I will. You know, um, and first of all, I, I, I teach this at NOVA. I'm, a, I'm an adjunct professor for NOVA Southeastern University, and I teach on the 
on the graduate level and, and the criminalization you know of people with disabilities um, is not a new phenomenon um, by any stretch and back in the you know during the civil rights movement particularly um, as a result of Robert F Kennedy and John F Kennedy um, both the um, exposure of what was happening uh, to uh, individuals that were locked away in these beautiful, beautiful state hospitals. I mean, they look gorgeous. Uh, these asylums, you know, from the outside, they were majestic and grand and on these sprawling, you know, campuses. But on the inside, they were snake pits. And that's what they were referred to. And it wasn't really until 19, the early 1970s, for example, when a reporter uh, leaked information to Robert F. Kennedy that he started investigating Willowwood, um, a very large um, children's, um, really for um, developmentally disabled um, children. The term back then was, was children that suffered from mental retardation. We don't use that term um, anymore. But when Robert F. Kennedy got into Willowwood uh, and invited Geraldo uh, Rivera um, to come with him, um, that expose literally was one of the um, events that completely turned the nation uh, around in terms of what was happening in these institutions. Um, the other precipitating event that moved to a deinstitutionalization movement was all of these federal class actions, similar to the one that I described that I worked at South Florida State Hospital. That was somewhat of a, of a much later downstream federal class action, but there were a flurry of civil rights actions being brought by attorneys against state hospitals for failure to treat, for lack of privacy, for horrendous conditions that they were living in. and. Um, one by one, you know, federal judges were, you know, uh, creating these these very very extensive settlement agreements surrounding these state hospitals and this litigation. And the states ultimately, many of them, began to close the state hospitals. Um, they didn't want to, quite frankly, pay, um, you know, the costs that were involved in uh, meeting the compliance of the. Uh, judges' orders and with new medications online, uh, individuals were able to, quite frankly, um, become functional and rehabilitation was starting to come into play. And in 1963, John F. Kennedy passed the uh, 1963 Community Mental Health Act. And the Community Mental Health Act at the time was intended to transform mental health in America. Unfortunately, we've never realized that dream, but it, the idea was for community mental health centers to be established um, all across the country, and unfortunately that never happened, largely because of stigma, discrimination, and uh, also a, just a kind of lack of an evidence base, if you will, as to how to do that. And so you had the closure of all of these state hospitals, people were being discharged and released without places to go. Their families couldn't manage them. They didn't have, you know, the continuum of care or services to do that. 
Most of these individuals became homeless. They started just really being trans-institutionalized into jails. And in 1998, almost a year after Broward began its mental health court, the New York Times, through uh, the famous Fox Butter Butterfield uh, special report, declared uh, America's jails and prisons as the new asylums. And quite frankly, not much has changed um, in terms of community access and care, unfortunately, since then, although there's been tremendous strides in mental health and recovery and rehabilitation since then. So we're kind of living, if you will, the best of times and the worst of times at the same time when it comes to individuals with mental health and other kinds of neuro disorders. Now, do you see, see it the way I do and at differentbrains.com, where basically all of the mental health labels, if you will, and all of the developmental disability labels, and the psychiatric, and the neurological, to me, they're just one big spectrum, not just an autistic spectrum, but of autism and everything else, where if we try one size fits all, whether it's in the schools or the place of employment or the judicial system, that it's not going to work. What kind of training is going on in the judicial system as we speak regarding neurodiversity in different brains? None, um, really. You know, when you're, when you're talking about it from, from that perspective, which is really a person-centered perspective, no labels, right? And I think that we haven't quite gotten that far upstream yet. I think, first of all, I think in Broward County and other parts of the, of the country, I think there's been tremendous progress, having said that. I mean, because think about where we were before there was a mental health court. And um, that was where you had individuals, like you're talking about, with all kinds of neuro disabilities and diversity types of issues, but judges only really cared or focused on one thing, and that is they're responsible for administrating their cases. They want to get through their dockets. They want to be able to manage what's happening in their courtrooms. So think about, you know, when an individual comes in and they just don't fit. They're not able to respond to, you know, simple questions by the court. The court's trying to figure out what direction a case should take, whether or not the person, you know, is going to hire a lawyer, needs a lawyer, qualifies for a lawyer. What if the person is having some kind of a psychotic type of episode and they're they're belligerent to the court, not because they're actually being disrespectful, but because they can't process, right, well. And so you had judges that were getting ex just ex so frustrated. They would end up holding individuals in contempt. 
largely as a manifestation of, of um, symptomology when the judges perceive them as being contemptuous and disrespectful. You had individuals that couldn't make bonds and they couldn't figure out who to call. And so the idea that the court system back before there was a mental health court just wasn't equipped to respond to the complexity of neurodiversity. And now, because of mental health courts, because of where we are today, now at least you know the knowledge base has come, I think, light years forward. And people now matter. Before, I really think that there was a pervasive, prevailing, you know, stigma, of a, a prejudice that a culture that, you know, wink winks and nod nods and laughter if somebody was, you know, acting in bizarre ways as opposed to looking at that person as somebody that wasn't feeling well and really needed you know, help. And we've now turned that culture largely around. And so while I don't think that we're quite where we need to be in terms of neurodiversity, I definitely think we're moving in that direction. And in the mental health courts, if we wanted to give our viewers an idea of the type of people with what diagnoses you see there, what kind of neurodiversity you're seeing there. Could you give us a little brief on that? I could. Um, well, I think that the good news is, and I think you would, it, you'd be so happy to hear, you know, the court uh, was designed without labels, essentially, because we recognized that we wanted to really cast a very wide net meaning that we know, for example, in our state that we have such a diverse population. We have a l large population of seniors um, that have all kinds of neurological disorders from Alzheimer's to dementia. We have individuals that may have had brain injuries from traffic accidents like Aaron Wynn, for example, or veterans um, coming back with, um, you know, PTSD traumatic brain injuries, neurological problems, and PTSD. And of course, we know that the impact of adverse childhood experiences and trauma um, often leads to cognitive types of problems. And then, of course, we have individuals with all kinds of intellectual learning disabilities and intellectual challenges. And so the idea behind the um, establishment of the court was to cast a, really a neurodiverse net and we really wanted to get people into the court to see where we could help mostly because Florida you know you might know this and uh, if your viewers don't know this they they need to and that is you know Florida is the third largest state in the United States and we are literally 49th funded in the entire country. We are um, in absolute crises and that was the uh, outcome of the grand jury report. We live with that crisis. We have uh, broken systems, a lack of services and resources and the idea behind the court 
was we knew this. And so we wanted to create a court where we could centralize and marshal highly, highly scarce resources. And that's really the beauty uh, behind the court. And so people that need help can get the individualized type of care that they need based upon the population and you know where they're kind of situated and what their needs are and it is a person you know person first uh, approach what advice could you give to the family of someone whose brain is a little bit different who gets into trouble I'll just make up a fictional example uh, someone with Asperger's who doesn't make good eye contact who's socially awkward who's a truth teller, who comes across as quite rude and everything. Um, at a routine traffic stop, the policeman thinks that that Aspie is being very rude and says the wrong thing and comes across as combative and uh, they bring him in. Now, what advice do you have for that family and I know that's a tough question, but I'm just thinking, I'm trying to give an example of someone who's, it's probably not the best example. Well, but, 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 but those examples happen every day. Yeah. Um, they happen all the time um, in all different kinds of contexts. And then you have family members, for example, who are really then left in crises because that's a family crisis. That certainly is when you have, um, a loved one that is now justice involved, whether they're children or teens or young adults or whatever, you know, that is going to potentially change a trajectory of a life. Let's be real um, about that. It could really um, happen, and it happens every single day. People get enmeshed in criminal justice systems. They begin to escalate, escalate through uh, we start out with something minor, uh, they get put on probation, they can't satisfy conditions of probation because they're too burdensome for an individual with neurodiversity types of problems and then all of a sudden they're back in a jail system or maybe they pick up a new charge or they're in a vulnerable state in a incarcerative setting. So you can see just by that one little example, it's not a small problem. It is a real potential problem and I really believe in what I advocate to my families um, that we see every day is a number of strategies. A number of strategies. And the first is to ensure that your loved one is linked, you know, gets, gets a good uh, quality screening and assessment, correct? So you can find out from a precise vantage point, as precise as possible, you know, what kind of treatment supports, interventions, and strategies your loved one, your child, or your, or your family member needs. The second thing that I advocate very strongly, because the bench, from the bench, we're doing a whole lot of things at the same time, but behavioral health or neuro, this is a new term of art, I'm gonna start using it in the court. Neurodiversity literacy is something that everyone really, really needs to learn and, and develop a competency in. 
And so I really encourage families to take it upon themselves to uh, get online and start studying, take classes, read books, become an expert, an expert in mental health or an expert in whatever area impacts your family, and also become experts in advocacy. We need every advocacy voice to be heard because we have to be able to get this lack of resource problem turned around. Without treatment, without access to care, everyone is vulnerable. Everyone is vulnerable, all of us. And so, for example, uh, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, for example, has a fabulous family-to-family uh, educational course given by Dr. Ken Duckworth, the National Medical Director for the National Alliance for Mental Illness. Take it immediately. Join groups, join advocacy groups, read your book, become an expert. The other thing is you really want to make sure that your family member, correct, is always operating through protective strategies. So for example, if, you know, from a personal vantage point, if that child shouldn't be driving because he or she may not be able to handle encounters, correct, with anxiety, then that really needs to be built in to their daily life and family decision making, I think, because you don't want to expose a family member to unnecessary risk and risk of incarceration for example in my view is a very very real risk so education learning how to advocate ensuring that you know your family member is getting wrapped in services and treatment and the importance of always coming from a strength based vantage point. Always coming from a strength-based vantage point, meaning, you know, if your child isn't performing or doesn't meet your expectations because of a neurodiversity type of a problem, it's not their fault. They're not doing it intentionally, correct? And that you really ought to come from a strength-based place and at the same time we encourage individuals to activate their own health, meaning take responsibility, get on top of that curve, correct? And become expert for yourself. The point about advocacy, I want to stress to our audience that you just heard directly from the horse's mouth from Judge Ginger Lerner Wren, not from me, from her, is you can make a difference advocating, getting active, joining groups. You can and do make a difference. It's not just voting. It's doing all these other things too. And now that we have the age of Google, where you don't have to go to the library and you don't have to go exploring or buy the Encyclopedia Britannica, you can go online and become as expert as many, many have. Um, what are your personal goals coming up? Are you writing any books? I am. Um, thank you for asking. That's, that's, I, I actually am writing a book. 
Um, it's being considered right now, and my it, it does run right to my personal goals. It does, in one part, tell the story about the power of community, how a small group of people could make great change. And I think that is such an inspirational story. I think the story behind Broward County's mental health court, I mean, think about what we did. I mean, no money, no grants, just the will of a few people coming together to say we need to do something. We cannot go on like this. We cannot blindly allow people, you know, with neurodiversity problems, you know, to, to go into jail settings when in fact they need to be in community-based, linked with care. They need to be treated humanely with dignity and respect and to be treated under the law equally. And so, you know, the fact that we did this, to me, even 20 years later, inspires me every single day. And I really think that the story um, is a gorgeous story. It's an inspiring story that out of desperation comes innovation. And I love that, that part of the story. And then the second part of the book project really is going to focus um, on the idea of, from a public health vantage point, we have to move away from this over-reliance on the criminal justice system. Reducing mass incarceration has to include funding mental health, you know, and all other kinds of neurodiversity, you know, matters on a public health basis. You know, this is not about bad people. <laughs> this is about people that have neurodiversity problems. And we need to treat it as a public health urgent matter. And if we're going to reform the criminal justice system, then these populations need to be included. And that is my goal. My goal is to see the end of the criminalization of people with disabilities and neurodiverse disabilities. And that was really Broward's goal from the beginning. That is extremely well said, and I salute you. You're a real champion of the underdog. Thank you. I mean, I don't box, and I never <laughs> did, but I consider myself quite uh, a social justice warrior. You're a fighter and you're a warrior, that's yeah. for sure. When you were young, when you were a kid, not that you're not young now. That's okay, I'm not young now. <laughs> but when you were a kid, did you think you wanted to be a judge? Yeah, you know, I had a different brain. I mean, I'm probably one of these different brains. I mean, when all my other friends at my age were like back in the early 60s were watching Romper Room or whatever else might have been on at the time, and we didn't have all those great choices that we do now, obviously, in Sesame Street. But I was watching biography. I mean, I was really different. And I was attracted to uh, segments that dealt with civil rights and injustices. And I knew very, very early that I wanted to run for office. Uh, that I knew. Which office? I wasn't so sure. Um, that was kind of by a process of elimination and going around and shadowing friends of ours, you know, back when I was, uh, after I graduated from law school, 
you know, am I interested in this office or a legislative office or a local office or whatever, but the judiciary uh, for me seemed like a really, really good fit. And the answer is absolutely. I always wanted to do civil rights work. Uh, I just lectured a symposium at the law school yesterday, and I told these law students, you know, if you want to be a change agent and you want to, you know, work in the public interest or the social justice field, you know, you should do it because we need everybody. We need everybody. And I really, you know, I'm living the dream. Well, that's great. We're lucky to have you as Thank part you. of the judiciary. Thank you. It's joy. Well, that's it for another episode here of Exploring Different Brains. We've had the privilege of talking to the pioneer in the mental health courts right here in Broward County for the whole nation, Judge Ginger Lerner Wren of the 17th Judicial Circuit right here in Broward County. And uh, thank you so much for being here, Judge. Thank, thank you, you so much, Hacky. It's, it's a real thrill. It's an honor. And um, I am going to uh, champion neurodiversity uh, in the courts, and uh, I'm really excited about that. So thank you. We're talking today with Judge Ginger Lerner Wren, the 17th Judicial Circuit in Broward County in the Criminal Division. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.com.